Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of the Good Fight Radio Show. I am here today with Dr. Jeffrey Cran, and I am so excited about this interview. I literally just heard him speak on the topic of Old Testament canon and manuscripts and so forth, and I'm excited to talk with him today specifically on why we can really trust the Old Testament that we read every day. So welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show. It's great to be here. No, I, I, I am excited, and I thought, you know, what the speech that you gave, the teaching that you gave just now was just so important, but I think it'd be really good for the audience before we even get into some of the nitty-gritty and, and some of the really good stuff that you talked about in the, the speech here at the Ministry to Muslim Conference that we're at. I would love to hear how you came to faith in Jesus Christ because, I mean, we're here because we love Jesus and you care about God's Word because you love also the living Word and you love the written Word. So so how did you come to faith in the Messiah? Well, I, I like to give my background because, you know, there's an old joke, three Jews, four opinions. Uh, and so Jewish believers don't all have the same background. My my mom's dad was a Orthodox Jewish man who took an interest in my Jewish education, being the only male grandchild and the firstborn. And so um, he was kind of my spiritual mentor. He took me to synagogue. My dad was an agnostic who used to argue the existence of God with him. Oh, wow. So they were divided on that issue. Um, and so I got a certain amount out of that. Uh, I learned that God was the good king. I believed he did care about his creation and people. Um, and so that was like a primary picture. Uh, and went through life getting kind of zealous as I went through Hebrew school and went to Jewish camp for uh, the traditions of the fathers. But my home was more of a secular Jewish setting. So I kind of like tried to split the difference. Uh, very moral. I, I like Nicodemus. I can relate to Nicodemus. Uh, my parents said, you don't get in trouble, trouble finds you. And so um, went through school and Jewish parents want Jewish grandbabies. And I started dating a Catholic girl, not the girl I'm married to. And so if a fish marries a bird, where will they live? And so they had a fit and I was incensed because this girl hadn't done anything wrong. She wasn't a not nice girl. Uh, and so I pulled a little bit away from Judaism and got into the sciences, walked into my eighth grade teacher and said, I'd like to build a ruby laser. And he looked at me uh, and thought maybe I could learn something new from the sciences, but didn't learn anything new. The first time I went away, really went away from the family was, was college. And I went to Drake University for pre-pharmacy of all things. Uh, and I ran into Christians there that were from Navigators. I didn't know what Navigators was. I had some Christian neighbors, but they didn't know how to relate to us, to relate the gospel to us. Uh, and so I went to a Purity in Life seminar. And again, being a kind of a moral kid, it wasn't, you know, 
kind of thought I was doing okay, you know, almost like Nicodemus, you know, a little bit doing okay. But I'd gotten a little bit too close and intimate with this high school girlfriend because we kind of did the, we're going to be getting married after college thing, you know, where you kind of project into the future and um, realized I had violated my standards. So I clearly violated God's standards. Uh, the long of the short was God started me in a study on the Gospel of John. I wrestled with the Trinity. That is still one of my favorite issues. I love the problem of evil. I love Trinity. Uh, and uh, God took me on a tour of the Old Testament showing me plurality. And he started with my life verse, which is a real important verse to all Jews, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, the Shema. And he started there and started showing me plurality. And then I started reading Matthew because I read John and John didn't make any sense to me. Who is this guy, John? Then I hit Matthew. The first thing I discovered, Jesus was not Swedish or Italian. That was like a shock. Uh, and I began to read Matthew and see Jesus in a different light. He's talking to Jewish people. He's answering Jewish questions. He's, he's talking about issues that I could relate to. You know, my grandfather wanted to wash hands on the Sabbath. Do you wash hands on the Sabbath? Do you? I mean, these questions. Uh, and I also started looking at Matthew's use of prophecy. Okay, was Matthew totally crazy or did he use prophecy correctly? And so I went from the Trinity and seeing plurality, so I couldn't eliminate Christianity that way, to looking at Messianic prophecy to wondering what I was going to do about the fact I had violated God's standard in my conscience. And that brought me to the issue of atonement at the same time. This all kind of coalesced over the summer. Uh, and uh, I discovered Judaism has no atonement. Uh, and so it was like, okay, God wouldn't get rid of our atonement system and leave us nothing. And I don't buy that the rabbis could come up with alternatives because who gave them permission? And so I kind of dealt with that. My dad figured out that Navigators was not a yacht club because he kept my checkbook and found out what I had been doing. And so he gave me a very loving Jewish warning. He's trying to preserve his heritage. I understand it. If you become a Christian, I'm not supporting you through college. My Jewish son, I'll send to college. My Christian son, I'm not sending to college. See if you can economically understand this. And I uh, went to a different school. So I went from Des Moines, Iowa to Southern Illinois in Carbondale. By the way, both are exactly eight hours from where I lived. And uh, ran into Christians. And you know, I found them. They prayed before they ate. Jews usually say grace after meals. And unsafe football players just leave sparks on their forks as they're eating. And that's kind of how I divided things up in the lunchroom. And ran into them, and they let me ask questions. And the one thing I knew was the Jesus I thought I knew wasn't the Jesus that Matthew had. So I remember a day a street preacher came to the campus, and a Muslim girl was arguing with her. And I started explaining from Abraham to Jesus that I don't think she was understanding the street preacher and why. And these Christians came over and they said, are you a believer? Because they're watching this. And I said, no, I'm one who's seeking. And they invited me to a Bible study. Uh, the long and short of it is God proved to me that I wasn't the first Jewish guy ever to consider this because I thought historically I was in over 2,000 years. 
And the last prophecy I looked at was Daniel's 70 weeks of sevens. And I realized that there was no other candidate I could point to before 70 AD other than Jesus who met the qualifications. And signed a Gideon Bible at 12.05 on September 5th, 1981. That is, that is amazing. And you know what, I, I, gotta, I gotta ask you because you talked about studying the plurality in the Old Testament and specifically the Trinity in the Old Testament because I do believe this is a place where in the apologetics realm there are a lot of very esteemed apologists and so forth that say, you know, the Trinity, that's just New Testament, that's just New Covenant. But you were finding that in, in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Where, how about, where do you see that? Well, uh, in Second Samuel, and I'm trying to pick the exact, I know the passage, uh, the angel of the Lord is executing judgment on Jerusalem because David took a census. And the Lord speaks to the angel of the Lord and tells him to stay his hand. It is enough. What's interesting is you can establish the angel of the Lord is God. And there are even Jewish encyclopedias and dictionaries that admit the angel of the Lord is a manifestation of God. He... And so now I have two persons, the angel of the Lord's being talked to by somebody who is God, the angel of the Lord's God. Well, it doesn't get me to the Trinity, but it certainly gets me to a plurality. Um, the other is the Shekinah. Jews call it the Shekinah or the Shekinah. It's that pillar of fire. God literally dwelt in the temple above the cherubim. Well, uh, it's in Exodus, I believe it's 16, where Moses says to the children of Israel, For the Lord has heard your complaints. For the glory of the Lord has heard your complaints against the Lord. And tomorrow you shall see the Lord. Well, wait a minute. The glory of the Lord has heard your complaints against the Lord. The Lord is God. The Shekinah is God's dwelling presence. The dwelling presence of God has heard your complaints against God. Isn't the dwelling presence of God also God? Yeah. Well, now I see two persons. They both appear to be personal. I did a YouTube. Is the angel of the Lord a hologram? And they both possess deity. And uh, I'm not the one who's written on Jewish scholars who aren't saved have written on this. Daniel Bayarin, the Jewish Gospels. Ellen Siegel, the two powers in heaven. There were many Jews that were binitarian in the Second Temple period. And the rabbis put a stop to it. Wow. It's called the Doctrine of the Two Powers. That is absolutely incredible. And you mentioned also in your testimony Deuteronomy 6.4, the, you know, Shema Israel. Now, how, how do you read that? and come to the conclusion there's a plurality there. Sometimes the word echad does mean one. Okay, we've got to be fair. But there are times when it indicates a compound unity or a compound one. One of my favorite places is to turn to Genesis 2.26, and the two shall become one flesh. But the other one I like is in Numbers, where they bring back one cluster, echad eskal, one cluster of grapes. And I like to ask, you know, you mean they tied one grape to a rod, brought it back, and everyone said, this is a fruitful land because you found a grape? Um, so echad doesn't have to mean numerically one. Now yechid means only one. Take thy son, thy only son. In fact, a lot of times it's translated only. Uh, and so take thy son, thy only son. Uh, yechid ben. And so when God wants to distinguish that something's only one, 
and the context does not indicate it has to be only one, then we have the possibility of plurality. And is there any more important place to do that if you were trying to do that than Deuteronomy 6? Well, the other thing yeah. is the Shema, and people don't pay attention to where it is. It's not a statement of God's nature. It's a statement of allegiance. The Shema, and this was pointed out by Dr. Michael Brown, who is incredible, uh, the Shema occurs after the giving of the Ten Commandments. So it's about allegiance, not the nature of God. So when a Jewish polemicist pulls that out, I say, wait a minute, I can look at every one of those verses and point out that it's about allegiance, and it's about monotheism versus polytheism, but it is not about the nature of God's oneness. And what I like to say to Christians, when you're talking about the Trinity, start by saying, what I'm talking about is the nature of God's oneness, not whether he's one. Mm, that's, that's really, I think those are really important for people that are wanting to share the gospel. And, and this is important if you're sharing the gospel with, you know, a, a Jewish neighbor, right? This is important if you're sharing the gospel with a Muslim neighbor and so forth. So these things are, are really important to bring out. And, and what is the name of your YouTube channel? Because I know you're doing Bible studies on there. And, and I want people that are hearing your testimony, they're hearing you give these answers. And you're like, wait a second, I want to dig more into this. What, what is the name of your YouTube Zion's channel? Zion's Banner. Zion's Banner. And we'll put a link in the description as well. So if you guys didn't hear that, we'll make sure a link is in the description to make sure some people can catch this. I know you're doing Bible studies all the time on your channel. Even live, people are getting involved on there. So I think that's huge. And one of the more awesome things you just taught on, and I'd love to give some answers because we've dealt a lot uh, on our channel, uh, on our podcast show and so forth, on the New Testament canon and understanding why we can trust that the New, New Testament is God's word. But I just heard you give a, a speech for the reliability of the Old Testament as well. And I think this is one that is often... I guess it's probably less spoken to than the New Testament canon in terms of reliability. I can get book after book. I can go to F.F. F. Bruce or Michael J. Kruger or Daniel Wallace and so forth, and a lot of them are really, really going after the New Testament because that's what's being attacked most often. But I, I guess I could start off asking you about the Old Testament and the preservation and how God preserved His Old Covenant um, by simply asking you, why should I trust that the Old Covenant is actually God's Word? Well, first of all, you have the precision of the Old Covenant. Uh, the Jewish scribes were very meticulous. I think it was Metzger who said, no, it was actually, um, um, I'm thinking, it was just an author I read, the, the preservation of the Old Testament uh, relies more on the precision of the scribes. The preservation of the New Testament relies more on the multiplicity of manuscripts. Uh, Jewish people are still handwriting their Torah scrolls for synagogues to this day according to the same sort of standards or same sort of procedures. And it's very procedural. It's, it's very methodical. It's, um, one author called it super, he, he kind of referred to it as like superstitious reverence. And I thought, well, the reverence parts there, superstitious, uh, depends on how you use the term. Uh, but they didn't keep mistakes around. They didn't use whiteout. They didn't scratch out. They didn't say, you know, draw an arrow, you know, like on a letter, here's the word I really wanted. Uh, they would actually, if there were a certain number of errors in a line, the entire text would be destroyed. And we're talking about real time for people to do this. Torah scrolls are expensive because they are handwritten and it takes real time to do that. And if you're, you're halfway through the book of Deuteronomy, and you make enough mistakes, you have to destroy all the work you've done up to that point. 
so there's incredible precision. But we also have cross-check. We have the Subtuagent. Uh, we have the Targums. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls. What a find the Dead Sea Scrolls were. Moving our manuscripts back a thousand years or so from where they were. And I always like to tell them, I went to Israel and saw the first chapter of Isaiah. Read it, ran out to our tour guide and said, it's exactly the same. And he just looked at me and he said, of course it's the same. Praise the Lord. I think that's amazing. Now, you mentioned the Targums. Now, what exactly are the Targums for people who've never heard of what the Targums are? When the Jews came from Babylon, their Hebrew wasn't so good. 70 years in Babylon will just wreck it for you. Um, We find that when we read Nehemiah and Ezra, that Ezra read the law and the scribes gave sense. And the Hebrew word there is a word related to Targum. And so Ezra would read it, and then the scribes would recite it in Aramaic so that the audience could fully understand. Those at first were forbidden to be written, but you know how that goes. So they started getting written down, and then they got preserved. And so we have an early text of the Bible that, even though it wasn't totally codified, was probably orally recited alongside the Torah in the synagogue. Wow. And now we can test those things with the Masoretic text, with the Dead Sea Scroll text, with also the Greek text and the Septuagint, right? And now we have these Targums. I mean, we have all of this evidence. And when we think of variants, right? I mean, people would tell us there's a lot of variants there, right? So what kind of variants are we looking at? And is it to the point where we can't really get back to the meaning? No, we can get back to the meaning. And the variants are often orthographic mistakes spelling mistakes, uh, maybe a little different in the word. One I think about is the Subtuagent, the rest of all mankind, James quotes in Acts 15, whereas you have the remnant of Edom in one text. Well, Adam and Edom are very similar. And so you're talking about the difference possibly in above, which is it's just a line uh, in there. Nothing that affects doctrine. I'm amazed at where there aren't variants, like where Rabbi Singer would like a variant. There's a small variant in Isaiah 52, 13, which is really the beginning of Isaiah 53. But strangely enough, there's no variant in Isaiah 53, 6, where all we like sheep have gone astray and everyone has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him, Messiah, the iniquity of us all. Yeah, and and for those who don't know, Rabbi Tovia Singer, he is... Very, uh, I don't even, evangelical, but for the Jewish side, uh, for a very antagonistic against the Christian faith. Yeah, he's a polemicist, and he will actually go so far as to try to convert Christians back to Judaism. So he doesn't just deal with Jews. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, he even, he'll go through New Testament texts. And you've been dealing with with him a little bit on your channel as well, dealing with some of the things uh, that he's been saying on his channel. And you've been going over some of those on yours. Is there anything recent uh, that he's come out with that you uh, have been able to hopefully answer pretty yeah. well. Yeah, Rabbi Singer likes to use the statements where Jesus didn't know something. No man knows, the, not even the sun knows the hour. Uh, and he likes to attack those sorts of things. And so he made a whole statement about how uh, Christians are not using conventional language when we talk about persons. And any person would use conventional language. And so I said, well, first of all, the conventional language test for the Bible and interpretation 
is not a good way to look at the Bible. My wife and I become one flesh. Do we, we become one trans person? Or does one of us lose our identity? We don't conventionally talk about one flesh. What does that mean, conventionally, if I take that conventionally? So that's a, a faulty standard. It's a straw man standard. And then I talked about the fact that he's got a bigger problem than I do. Because if the angel of the Lord's God, God just localized himself. And if he thinks God can't not know something, how can God temporarily lay aside his om omnipresence? So he's got a bigger problem to face than I do. Yeah, that's that's a big amen on that. I think that's that's really, really, really important for us to understand. And so I want to ask you because I think, you know, we're here actually, you know, I mean, praise the Lord, we're at uh, an Islamic conference. And the Islamic, you know, polemic against the Christian faith, whether they're coming against the New Testament or Old Testament, has to do with you can't trust that it's been corrupted. So I, I'd love for an answer for someone out on the streets. They're maybe sharing with a Muslim. They're wanting him to share. The, they want to share the gospel. And he says they're, they're sharing with them text. And they say, oh, you can't trust that. It's been corrupted. What would be your apologetic answer to them of, no, it hasn't? Well. When you're dealing with a Muslim, it's a little different because I like to say that we have texts that verify the Old Testament text prior to Muhammad. Uh, the question I asked a young Muslim man yesterday out at the mosque is, when was it corrupted? And he looked at me, he said, well, an exact date? I said, no, I'll give you a few hundred years. When was it corrupted? When was there a text that was different than this and there was a corruption? Uh, the other is the geographic distribution of texts. There was a Bible belt in the ancient world. Paul went into cities and went to the synagogue first. They all had Torah, you know, they had Torah scrolls. So now I've collected all the Torah scrolls and I've managed to corrupt them the same way. What jet did they use to do this? And so I say, okay, you don't have a date where you can point to a clear corruption of all the texts unifiedly and in the same way. Um, if a secularist says that, I'll say, okay, so if I take a McGuffey reader and I take a different versions of the McGuffey reader and there's a slight change in a McGuffey reader because we homeschooled, you're going to tell me the McGuffey reader was corrupted? What do you want to do with Plato and Shakespeare where we have far less manuscripts? Are you going to argue we don't have the writings of Shakespeare? We have a lot less manuscripts for those. Nobody questions those parts of history. So why is this part of history one you're going to question? <laughs> that is a really good question. And, and guys, I hope for, for these things, these, these questions that he's answering, hopefully you guys can also dig deeper and this can hopefully get your palate a little more hungry for, for some deeper study on these things because it is really important for us to be able to give an answer and a defense for the hope that is within us. When people attack the Bible, the, our faith, we have to be able to answer it. And I think... Dr. Cran is doing an excellent job for us here today. And I, and I want to ask you, and, and specifically, because I'm sure you've done a lot of sharing the gospel, also not just with your Muslim neighbor, but with your Jewish neighbor as well. And I know for myself personally, I've loved sharing uh, typology. I've loved sharing uh, messianic promises. But I would love to hear from you as someone who, I know you're an evangelist at heart. You go out in the streets, preach the gospel. I'd love to hear what kind of message you could give to point someone to the fact that Jesus, Yeshua, is in fact the promised Messiah of the Old Covenant. Um, I, I usually like to, I talk about the Jerusalem Road, which is like my version of the Romans Road, 
Because I like to tell Christians, you don't have to just stick to the last third of your Bible. Your hands are not tied. Um, one of the things, and I haven't asked a Muslim this. I kind of wish I'd gotten to it at the mosque. Why don't you walk like Abraham? Abraham believed God, had personal trust in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Is personal trust the same as a checklist? You know, if I check off bringing roses to my wife, is that the same as personally trusting her? Uh, Judaism focuses on the doing of the mitzvot, but the problem is doing doesn't, works don't create faith, but faith will create works. So you're, you're inverting where you start. Um, um, when I'm dealing with a secularist, it's different because he might not even be willing to acknowledge there's a God. So you have to start where people are at. Yeah, amen. I think that's the what we're given in Colossians 4, 2 through 6, uh, specifically, you know, grace, beauty, and seal and salt, so even though it give, had a given answer to each person, you know, and I think that is so important for us. And, you know, you mentioned specifically Daniel 9 as just such a, and, and I'm, I know you mentioned this as well, the beginning of Daniel 9, quoting Jeremiah as well, um, I, I thought that was really great that you brought that out. But a lot of people are ignorant of that. And also the fact of the temple and the temple being destroyed in 70 AD and this Messiah needed to be cut off before then. I just thought, wow, I'm so glad this is being told when people are hearing this because it's so important. I've watched debates between Christians and Jews and that point is one I've never seen answered really to any depth whatsoever as to where is this Messiah that was cut off um, and, and I don't know if you've heard a better answer than I've heard, because I haven't heard a very good one from the Jewish No, side. actually, there's a Talmud passage that says, whoa, there's a breach between the people and God, for our temple is destroyed. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but that's why they meet in 70 AD and sort of revamp Judaism. They, they really have no choice. You, you have to come up with an explanation. One of the questions I haven't asked a lot of Jewish people, but, but it's a really good question. Our people are always exiled when we've disobeyed. So you were born in Brooklyn in exile. It's called Golat. Why were you born in exile? What did our people do? <laughs> that is really good. I like that. That is really good. And, you know, just having, you know, for my own understanding and mindset of, of, of looking at it, I think I know my mind was renewed in understanding uh, the Messiah and his, you know, because a lot of times I think the, the main... Uh, the main argument that I've heard uh, Jews used against Jesus being the Messiah is there's no peace. What are you talking about? This is supposed to be the age of the Messiah. So what, what would be your answer, I guess, to, hey, I don't see peace here. What are you talking about? There's, there's terrible things going on. I think about Brooklyn when you have the black Hebrew Israelites and you have Jews there. I mean, it does, it's not very peaceful between, between them over there or in a lot of places, Afghanistan, everywhere where this is going on. How is this the age of peace? How is this the age of Messiah? Daniel has Messiah coming in the clouds. Micah has him being born in Bethlehem. You either have two Messiahs or you have two comings. Take your pick. I think that is absolutely wonderful. And I think that's probably a great place uh, to finish up. I love that. Take your pick. Do you have two messiahs or do you have two coming? So I want to thank you, Dr. Cran, because I think this has just been excellent. I'm going to have to bother you again. Maybe we can do it on Zoom or something and get you back for another interview, get you even more in depth on this stuff because this has just been wonderful. So I want to thank you for joining us on the Good Fight Radio thank Show. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Oh, praise the Lord. And God bless you guys. 
You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.